This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. Tonight we've got a guest with us in the studio, Jazz Dawson from Kaleidoscope Australia Human Rights Foundation. Uh, Jazz is completing a PhD at the moment with research focused on sexual orientation-based refugee law. Welcome to the show, Jazz. Thanks very much. I know that's a mouthful. (laughs) I think it's a great mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your uh, background and the work that Kaleidoscope does? Yeah, um, so I guess like my academic background, I'm a baby PhD student at Melbourne Uni, um, but I my background is in politi- politics and not in law. Um, but at Kaleidoscope, I'm one of the directors there, and I'm also the chair of the LGBTI refugee group, which is a group that aims to bring together LGBTI groups in Australia and refugee groups to kind of put all their tools together to help queer asylum seekers. Um, and Kaleidoscope is an LGBTI human rights organisation that's a sister group of Kaleidoscope Trust, which is based in the UK. And we kind of advocate for LGBTI rights um, in the Asia Pacific. So we're quite outward looking. We don't really look at domestic issues. Um, and the one caveat is on asylum seekers. So we've recently produced our report, which is the um, LGBTI best practice guide for refugee status determinations. And we're trying to set up some training as well for decision makers. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. You're a busy lady, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> um, what are some of the particular issues that, um, and challenges that are faced by female, um, anyone of a rainbow persuasion asylum mm. seekers? Uh, just broadly speaking, yep. like where they've come from? or mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, women are often quite invisible in the asylum process to begin with. And then when it comes to like LGBTI, it's even more so. I mean, if you think of the, the basic statistic that we always go to, that, that 77 countries criminalise homosexuality, mm. only eight of those explicitly mention women in their legislation. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, well, because historically the law is the male domain it's for men and women are you know it's just ignored exactly um so that doesn't mean that persecution doesn't happen mm. it just means that it's not easily recognized so that's like the biggest issue is that you know women whether they're queer or not are, are often invisible in the asylum claim and another one another big issue is that women by their status in you know oppress especially oppressive societies they don't have the agency that men often do to even seek asylum you know, they might have children or they don't have access to money or wealth or they're not going to be safe. You know, they're less likely to be safe on the road. Um, so I think in the UK and Canada and Australia, one of the stats is that, um, you know, on average, only 16% of the asylum cases um, for based on sexual orientation um, are women and the rest are made by men. So so of the 100% that are in mm-hmm. in the LGBTI spectrum? Only on, on sexual orientation based. Okay. I don't have the stats um on gender identity okay and there's no known cases of an intersex um claim although we're trying to find one okay they must they do exist out there Mm. um and they certainly suffer persecution but there aren't any publicly available claims okay Mm. wow um now you said that kaleidoscope is more outward focused rather than Mm -hmm. looking at um domestic policy do you know if there's any um real discrepancies or conflict between um you know, the practices that we employ here versus how other countries deal with it? 
Yes. I mean, both for the good and the bad. Um, but I, especially our research kind of tends to focus on, you know, European countries and the US and the EU and how they, and obviously, you know, UN bodies and how they deal with asylum claims. Um, but for example, the European Court Justice um, last year had a really great finding based on asylum claim, which set out criteria for how you can assess a claim. And they basically said, you're not allowed to ask for ask or receive any sexually explicit material so you know historically claims there's been claims and there was one in australia this year where an asylum seeker showed pictures of him having sex with his partner which the you know the european court basically said that's a violation of someone's human rights and dignity and they're obviously feeling compelled to provide their infinite evidence so you shouldn't even review it um and, and they it, also it said, still wasn't accepted was it is that yeah, in in Australia, that claim basically the it was only it was part of the decision. I wouldn't say that it was that was what it hinged on, but they basically said that that merely proved that he'd had sex once. So there's kind of this, you know, nagging assumption that um, you know queer asylum seekers have extra kind of prejudice and people are more suspicious of them because you know there's all these kind of stories going around that you can just be gay for your asylum claim. Right. Um, and that people are more likely to do that than any other type, which I think is ridiculous. And kind of like in the army then. So they, you know, if you, during World War One and Two, if you mm. were gay, the likelihood was that you were sent home. So like a lot of them saw it as a, mm. a way a way out because you were clinically sick mm. if you said that you were feeling a bit gay. Right. So <laughs> Just yeah. feeling a bit gay for the day. <laughs> feeling Just a bit gay. gay. I'd, I'd be gay for day. the day to go. I just yeah. felt like it in that moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, I can see how they can try to win with mm. the gay card mm. because there is, there does tend to be a little bit of leniency around not not leniency but special uh, treatment perhaps a little mm. bit. And yeah, the the I reason I say that is because um, I remember going for uh, a particular visa in New Zealand and mm. myself and my partner had absolutely no issues and almost every straight couple I knew mm. had issues and the process took forever. Mm. And in my head, I was like, they just don't want to rise up the gaze. <laughs> I think that's why they just put ours through so well. quickly. But, you know, who knows? But mm. you, you're seeing this head on, you know, you're seeing mm. that people are attempting the same or, or this guy might have genuinely been gay, but they just... They just didn't accept it, I guess, in, in court. Yeah. And I mean, I think even though it's very difficult to prove that someone is or isn't gay and you can only do it, you can just try to be as ethical as you can. Um, but some of the kind of logical responses to a reason why someone wouldn't just pretend to be gay is that, you know, you're fleeing persecution in a cohort of people who probably come from that very traditional and very conservative environment that you've just fled so the likelihood that you're going to feel any safer by pretending to be gay is you know not going to happen and you know it's documented that queer women and queer men in detention or in transit going you know whilst trying to flee are far more um, unsafe so they're yeah. far more likely to be sexually abused or raped or you know so but would they have to state that claim before mm. they arrive on the shore uh, it depends what process because there's you know quite a few different ways of applying for asylum um, but we know for example that there's about 50 gay men on Manus Island and there's kind of this culture of people know but they don't want to ask and you know they if they don't think that there's a safe way to tell someone, they're not likely to. 
Um, but yeah, it really depends. It depends whether, you know, if you land in Australia, you're more likely to, if you come in on a plane and then apply for asylum, you're more likely to tell someone. If you're sitting in a refugee camp, I think you'd probably come up with a mm. different reason. And also like a lot of people, they've never spoken about it before in their entire life. So it's very difficult to, you know, open up to, especially, you know, an official, someone who's from the right. government, right? Who you're, who's scrutinising who's, you. Exactly. Who, historically speaking, you've been fearful of. Mm. Um, so disclosure is a really big issue and not, there's not enough done to ensure a safe environment for people to make that first disclosure about their LGBTI identity. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station, Joy 94.9. I have a question for you. Um with regards, because I'm quite innocent about, about all things refugees, like I see lots of stuff on the news and stuff, but I don't really understand the whole process. Like mm. I I did interview a guy once about um, um, asylum, the asylum seeking process, and that was my first taste of it, really. So mm. I guess, could you tell us a little bit about the, the history behind the types of claims or how sexual orientation became part of that claim process? Yep. Um, so sexual orientation uh, for the purposes of seeking asylum is based on a particular social group status, which is in the refugee convention. So normally you might hear about claims being based on political opinion or religious belief or maybe your ethnicity or um, you know your gender. Um, but since the late 80s, early 90s in countries like Australia and Canada and the UK, um, you've been able to claim asylum based on particular social group status or membership of particular social group status. Um, and sexual orientation falls under that and so does gender identity. Um, and like I said before, there hasn't been a, a publicly available intersex claim, but that may or may not fall under there or maybe gender-based persecution depending on what it is. Um, but we had our first claim in 1995, which ironically was before Australia even fully decriminalised homosexuality, which happened in 1997. Um, and the law has kind of developed from there. But of course, that only applies to asylum seekers who are onshore, because as we all know, anyone who arrives by boat um, is sent offshore to detention centres on Nauru and uh, Papua New Guinea, and they don't have access to claiming asylum and, you know, and going through the courts in the same way. So. Um, those offshore processing mm-hmm. um, measures that you've just mentioned, I mean, they're um, controversial, obviously. Mm. Um, now, they're particularly problematic for um, LGBTIQ people, aren't they? Yes, definitely. Um, so both Nauru and Papua New Guinea criminalise homosexuality um, and that same-sex acts between men. Um, I'm, To my knowledge, neither mention women. Um, and... Obviously, on Papua New Guinea, it's only men who are stationed there in the detention camps. Um, and on Nauru, they've got families there. I don't know of any, um, you know, queer women who are on those islands. But in Papua New Guinea, we know that there are at least 50 um, gay men who are stationed there, which is really problematic because technically um, Australia is bound by international law not to send asylum seekers to a place where they might be persecuted. So that's, we're blatantly doing that in the case of both Nauru and PNG and Cambodia, um, where we're about to start, you know, transferring. I think the first transfer was from Nauru. Um, They, LGBTI people suffer quite a lot of discrimination and persecution. I think, you know, one of the Cambodian ministers recently said that, you know, it was an illness and a sickness. So that raises some 
you know, problems for our processes there. It seems pretty cruel like yeah. to do that, like and very ignorant and mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't I mean, really know how people come to these oh, mm. ideas. No. And like th- it's just you know, it's proven we've had so many reports about the fact that, you know, the detention centers guards, they haven't had any training on what to look out for or how to look after um, queer asylum seekers who, you know, they're three times more as likely to be sexually assaulted or harmed in detention. And there was that um, kind of infamous story that came out about how the detention guards showed a picture that uh, had two men kissing with a big cross over it and said, you know, do not kiss because... Um, technically, the Manasala Detention Centre is run under Papua New Guinean law. So ah. they, not I don't think it would happen, but technically they could mm. report anyone who was, you know, having same-sex um, sexual acts in the detention centre to the local police. So in, am I right to believe then in, in the detention centres, they don't have the same kind of immunity that, say, uh, um, oh my God, where do ambassadors live? I'm having a brain melt. Mm. Um, embassies yes mm. that's what I was thinking <laughs> of so they don't have the same sort of immunity that embassies would have so they wouldn't have like a, a patch that they would consider Australia so they're actually in Papua New Guinea so the mm-hmm. local police could come in and just raid the place if they want to yeah I mean which we've seen in violence in the um, mm-hmm. detention centre before where the local police have come in and you know to devastating results um, sorted them out exactly um, mm. but that's you know it's part of the deal the deal is that they're offshore detention centers, so they run offshore and we pay a lot of money for the Papua New Guinean government to oversee um, but obviously they're Australian companies that are privately contracted over there as well but the likelihood of getting any information about that you know what goes on there is obviously in the news recently very difficult but um yeah would you say that the um um, LGBTI people are the most at risk in detention centres or would you say there are other cohorts as you were saying mm. that are more or less at risk in detention centres? Yeah well I mean obviously children I would probably you know it's hard to rank uh, who would be the most at risk. I know that yeah. sounds a bit insensitive yeah. but but yeah I mean there definitely are populations that are um, you know more at risk in those kind of environments and whether you know there's been a lot of studies looking at you know, queer detainees that are in prisons and looking at how much um, violence they face. And that completely translates into the asylum context. And, um, you know, there have been reports about sexual assault happening from guards, from other detainees. And in places like Manus Island Detention Centre, often if someone's sexually assaulted or raped, you know, they're still, they're stuck in the same compound as, you know, the person who's raped them. And they're not going to go and tell the guards or they're not going to report it to anyone because they know that it's illegal outside and, you know, they're very porous. While they're the detention centres, they're actually quite porous. So information can get out into the community. So if they're released, you know. Yeah. So it's a really, yeah, it's a horrible situation. Thanks for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. You are listening to her voice on Joy 94.9. And if you have just joined us, we have our wonderful guest, uh, Jazz Dawson, who I definitely believe is an absolute and utter expert in um, all things LGBTIQ and all things asylum seeking. So we, <laughs> we have spent the last half an hour talking about the intricacies of um, what it is to kind of 
process a, an LGBTIQ claim. But one of the things we really want to focus on are are women's issues mm-hmm. with regards to this because we 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 all know that oftentimes women's sexuality is often ignored and you know what probably for the best part it's a, it's a really good thing that it's ignored because it means they're not persecuted they don't go to jail for you know things that that, that doesn't exist as far as the government the government are concerned however when it comes to a claim and you put something down on a claim form and whoever's reading your claim form goes, that doesn't exist, don't be ridiculous. Mm. How do you get past that? Yeah, I mean, women like in all spheres of things have a, a very tough time. Um, and some of the main issues is that stereotypes about non-sexual ha- non-heterosexuality are based on Western male accounts and I mean, especially looking at the law, I think five out of the 52 cases that are based on sexual orientation um, asylum claims that have gone beyond the tribunal level have been women and the other 47 have been men. Um, So that's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing in many senses because it means there's a lot of cases getting up there, but it means that this concept and um, the stereotypes around sexual orientation are really being based on um, the kind of male coming out narrative. And there's been some really good research recently looking into the fact that many, um, you know, women who are non-heterosexual, whether they're bi or gay, um, really violate those kind of, you know, the master narrative of coming out. So that that stereotype that you'll feel different as a child. You might be like gender atypical, so you don't want to hang out with other girls. You might feel like, you know, more masculine or something. That when you're you're a teenager, it'll become apparent to you. You'll go through some kind of like, you know, Uh, trauma not trauma but you know like difficult period but then you'll arrive to it in your late adolescence and you'll you'll claim it strongly and then you know march onwards Um, whereas we see with women is often they don't have a connection with any kind of childhood feelings or you know like that's quite common or they women are much more likely to you know come out as or you know come to not come to terms but you know come to identify as a lesbian much later so we've seen claims of um for example women who are 50 years old who have their first lesbian relationship um so decision makers have a really hard time grasping that and understanding that because they're basing their decisions on the kind of you know western male dominated account of non-heterosexuality um i think you know Lord Roger, I think if I'm quoting properly, um, in a big case in the UK in 2010, he kind of said in his decision, which was kind of, um, you know, was heralded at the time, and he was like, just like, you know, men should be able to go and watch rugby and drink beers with their, you know, mates. Gay men should also be able to, you know, drink pink cocktails and go watch Kylie concerts. So even though he was trying to (laughs) celebrate, you know, gay asylum seekers, but then the next step is, well, what would that stereotype be for lesbians? Could you pin Mm. it down? What are those, you know, if he's trying to say, like, these are the clear things that, you know, non-heterosexual people, like, that doesn't follow through. Um, So we've had claims where... You know, a Muslim woman who had children, it's quite common for women to have been previously married or to have children, whether they've been forced into it or whether they've just done that. Um, and that throws decision makers off. Like um, Apato, who's a Nigerian um, asylum seeker recently in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, the UK barrister in that case said, you know, you can't be straight one day and gay the next. Mm-hmm. That was a very interesting case, I thought. I've mm. followed that quite a bit. And the the stuff that that judge said was mm-hmm. just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think she also had kids, um, 
and um yeah just the the sheer fact that somebody has kids disqualifies you as a mm-hmm. as a gay or mm-hmm. lesbian person yeah is which is which world do these people live yeah <laughs> well they live in a very uneducated one and yeah. uninformed one and that's one of the things that kaleidoscope were trying to address because um, in Australia, particularly, decision makers, tribunal members, have had one two-hour session on LGBTI. And we kind of say that, you know, just like you need to have understand the country and the persecution that happens there, if you're going to, to your best ability, decide a claim based on LGBTI, you need to have a basic understanding of what that is. Um, but they kind of, the general consensus is just that you should be able to tell it from the facts. But people's ignorance and bigotry is so evident you know in cases like that they're, they're just what about um transgender women as well obviously mm. i mean in society in general um they're one of our most hard done by groups mm-hmm. really um what about their treatment in terms of asylum claims yeah well i mean trans women obviously in detention and in transit are especially at risk they you know um, suffer a lot more harm and but in the actual claims, some of the issues are that, you know, just like there are lots of stereotypes about sexual orientation, there are stereotypes about gender identity. The level that um, decision makers have a very ethnocentric understanding of gender identity. So, you know, in Australia, we tend to talk about transgender as being, you know, the third gender. That's kind of our go-to. But in a lot of other cultures, gender is not understood that way. And there might be four or five different categories of gender. So if you're not educated about that, that can really be damaging. But also there's expectations that someone might have had surgery or that they might have begun to dress differently, which may not be the case. So decision makers really need to, you know, understand that, you know, transitioning is a process and it doesn't look the same every time and it doesn't sound the same. Um, But we see that quite often that there's these really, you know, and invasive questions about, people's personal lives that you wouldn't be able to ask in any other context right. mm. Mm. yeah you, you wrote an article that was published uh, in the conversation just last week mm-hmm. and um when i read this article there was an in- a very interesting question in there and it sort of uh compared that like straight people are never asked when did mm. you first realize you were straight mm. and then the the pondo to that or the counterpart question is so when did you first realize you were gay and i thought mm. well i couldn't pinpoint that moment i know that some people always knew they were gay or um or lesbian and and i I can't tell you that the second where i had that the sun breaking through the clouds shining on Mm. me and i was my religion teacher i know (laughs) i'm a lesbian you know and so um it just strikes strikes me that that would be a question that qualifies in a court case oh yeah to be to be honest you know what i think it is i think it's just that the courts they're they're meant to be impartial and but I think they're also they've probably been desensitized to the whole situation as well Mm -hmm. and in a way it's their job to not be biased it's their job to not take preference it's their job to not categorize people so maybe people have just pulled the wool over their eyes too many times could that be the case Mm, I definitely think that there's a level of uh ignorance about LGBTI mm. um, that doesn't explain that. I think that okay. the, the absolute basic level of understanding um, needs to be brought up a lot before that we could kind of say that it's the asylum seekers. Um, you know, because obviously that happens and that's a reality, but for sure they don't even have a basic understanding to go to, go to that excuse yet, okay. in my opinion, yeah. Um, now, Jos, we've almost run out of time. Um, 
unfortunately, because this has been a great conversation, but we do want to um, move on to um, some more celebration of Madoc Week. But we have had another message in. Uh, I'm not sure who it's from. Um, you'll probably like this one, though. It says, Jazz sounds like a babe, a very intelligent babe. Uh, would love to know what drives your interest in refugee affairs and what specialised support is offered for LGBTIQ refugees once granted asylum in Australia. Well, thanks. Very flattering. <laughs> I'm telling you. Where's my bloody babe? Thank you very you much. Have Joking. Had that. <laughs> you have already told that you sounded partner, sexy. That doesn't count. Yeah, so... I guess what motivates me, I just very much, you know, being a queer woman in Australia, I think that even though we don't have um, all the privileges and rights that straight people do have, I think that we are, you know, in the context of our region, exceptionally privileged. So I think every person only has a limited amount of political advocacy that they can give. And I think that we should really start looking um, outward into our region where a lot of people face persecution for something that um, is beginning to be celebrated here. For LGBTI asylum seekers, first of all, if you're working with LGBTI asylum seekers, assisting their claims, or you're a lawyer or a decision maker, I wish you were listening to this, um, you should go to kaleidoscopeaustralia.com and have a look at our recent guidelines that we've developed. Um, We have sample questions in there that um, assist uh, decision makers on how you should question an asylum seeker, which steers you away from stereotypes or sexually explicit questioning. and away from all of the problems that we've kind of talked about tonight. Um, But also there are quite a few organisations that are working with us at the moment to um, develop training to deliver to to refugee organisations. So Kaleidoscope should be able to do that in the future. So contact us if you'd like to know more about that. Um, But otherwise, the Red Cross and the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, as well as organisations like the Australian Gay and Lesbian, um, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex um, Council um, and the Gay and Lesbian Health Victoria, um, the Gay and Lesbian Lobby. There's quite a few that are all good working Lord, on this. Good Lord, you've got a good memory. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the goals um, as being chair of the LGBTI uh, community group that we're looking at is bringing to- together all these organisations that want to help, they have the resources to help, and um, we just need to kind of network and synergize and develop resources. So... If you head to our website, you can find out more stuff. But I definitely encourage you to go and look into your organisation if you do work for a refugee organisation or a queer organisation and contact us because you can be one of the people who's helping out. It's it's a very new area in Australia and we're still looking for a lot of people to get involved. Jazz, thank you so much for coming in to join us. You have been a fantastic guest. Um, Couldn't have had a a better guest in, I don't think, for our very first show. You've set the bar pretty high. To find out more about Joy 94.9, check out joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.